that's always been really exciting to me as the years have gone by is recognizing that some ideas just have to kind of marinate for yeah. five years or even 10 years. Uh, I still have every, every couple of months, I'll look through the notes section of my phone that's just like little nuggets of a story. And yeah. some of them are just a single line or a basic concept. But I know that the time will come for several of these. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Origin Stories podcast. I'm your host, Jarrett J. Krasoska. On today's episode, we'll get to know graphic novelist Nate Powell. Nate is a highly acclaimed writer-artist of critically acclaimed books such as Any Empire, Swallow Me Whole, and Save It For Later, Promises, Parenthood, and The Urgency of Protest. Nate is an Eisner Award-winning comics artist from Little Rock, Arkansas, who focuses on telling stories featuring young people facing difficult situations. In addition to Nate's multiple Eisners and countless literary awards, Nate took home the 2016 National Book Award for Young People's Literature, alongside his collaborators, Representative John Lewis and Andrew Aiden, for March Book 3. Now, let's get into Nate Powell's origin story. Origin Stories with JJK. Jarrett J. Krasowski. Jarrett Krasowski. Before we get into today's comics conversation, Origin Stories is sponsored in part by High Five Books, a beautiful and incredible indie bookshop here in Florence, Massachusetts. Check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for links to buy our guest books from this fabulous indie and while you're over on the High Fives website, check out their curated list of book recommendations. Truly High Five worthy. Okay, on to my chat with Nate Powell. How are you, Nate? It's good to see you. Doing fine, Jared. Thanks for having me. Man, it's been a couple of years, hasn't it, man? Oh, it has. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, just a slow crawl out of total isolation and trying to get a little bit back into the world. Still haven't been to a Comic-Con yet, but that's hopefully coming up this year, finally. And I, you know, I always appreciated Comic-Cons as a place to, you know, connect with readers and peers. I mean, that's how we met. We met in an elevator in Ohio at uh, Comics Crossroads. And I miss that more than ever. And I think probably that's probably why I started this podcast to sort of fill fill <laughs> that void of, of camaraderie. But even though, you know, we haven't seen each other in so long, I see your work online every day. And, and you and I were the same age. We have kids around the same age. And I feel like you and I have really been in this pandemic parenthood life together, albeit from several states apart. And I've long admired your work. And, and to me, your work is, has always felt like like a beautiful independent film. Thank something you. Like, something like A24 would make or, or, or when we were coming up, like something that we would have to go to the really cool art house cinema to see. Yes. You know, versus, you know, people are so lucky today that are coming up that they can find any sort of beautiful film at the touch of a button. And so, you know, what I'm most interested to start this conversation with Nate is... What kind of stuff you had as a kid that you absorbed? What art, what media like seeped into your skin and, and binded with your DNA to make the Nate Powell we know? And then what was your home like? What was your family like? What was your house like? What was your neighborhood like? Yeah, that, that's, where I, I, that's what I'm most interested in starting with. You bet. Okay, so I was born in 1978. My dad spent 24 years in the Air Force. So for the first 10 years of my life, we moved around a fair amount, not as much as some military brats, but 
let's see, my, my relationship with comics and with drawing started when I was about three years old, living on a nuclear missile base in Montana. I didn't know it was a nuclear missile base until like 10 years ago when the truth got dropped on me. Uh, I was like, oh, by the way, Nate, there were 244 nuclear missiles under the the ground beneath our neighborhoods at the height of the Cold War. Which also kind of sounds like a legit superhero origin story. Like, I feel like. No doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So you, okay. So you only recently found that out. And and as a kid, you're like this, you know, nuclear, it's all I've ever known. For sure. And uh, so, yeah, around that time, like in 1981, my intro to comics was because Wonder Woman, Spider-Man and the Hulk were all on TV at the same time. So I, you know, ravenously consumed these shows and started reading comics because of them. I also started drawing, but I, I didn't actually start drawing comics until the summer after sixth grade. So during that interim time, like throughout the 80s, I was definitely like a G.I. Joe obsessed, you know, child wading through forests and swamps in Alabama, living a very rich, internal, imaginary life. So I don't know, there's a lot of epic storytelling happening in my head, but it wasn't being translated to, to artwork yet. And I'd say, I don't know, I was probably influenced a lot by The Secret of Nim and by some of Don Bluth's other creations around the the mid 1980s but really like what what kind of woke me up was summer after 6th grade getting exposed to thrash metal and Chris Claremont's run on the X-Men at the same time and a lot of that was thanks to these two friends of mine Mike Lyerly and Nate Wilson who had been drawing comics for a little bit already but it really took them saying the words we should make a comic together and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, why have I, has that never occurred to me before? So like the incantation worked and I just never looked back from that moment. We got really serious, really fast about making comics and, you know, just found enough time in our nerd schedules to make it happen. And you have this great story you shared before we started recording of you and your pal sort of having a test run on, on what it might be like to be a grown up going to work to make comics. Yeah, without a doubt. Like we we had this X spin-off of a spin-off that that <laughs> featured like Marvel characters. We didn't understand copyright laws at the time, you know. So, we had, we had already put like 100 pages of pencils into this project. But in that in-between zone, we had a day off school, and instead of just doing like the normal stuff that we would have done anyway, Mike was like, "Oh, hey, why don't we go to that break room in the office where my dad works and try to put in a 9 to 5 workday?" and see how much work on our comic we can get done. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. But the thing is, putting yourself in like a separate environment and actually like striving to have some focus and some discipline, it paid off. Like by the end of the day, we were amazed at the fact that we actually did get a ton of work done. And I think a lot of the tricks, like the Jedi mind tricks and the self-treating that I do to this day uh, to kind of keep me on task, to, to get my work done, a lot of it stems from recognizing as a 13-year-old that like, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel some benefit to this. I need to pay attention to that and try to get that feeling again. So that that was a day that really like made me a lot more serious about what I wanted to do as a cartoonist. That's such a beautiful story. And I love that you have a photographic record of that time with your friend. And so, you know, there you are, you're, you're 13 you're you're taking 13 years worth of popular culture and imaginative play and, and what happens to you in high school well around that same time 
in eighth grade is when I got exposed to the underground punk rock community in Arkansas. Arkansas is my home state. It's where my family moved back after my dad retired from the Air Force. But I was very lucky to discover that there was this underground network of teenagers and young adults who were already working on, you know, not just being in bands and putting out tapes and records, but they were making zines. They were making comics. They were organizing, you know, events that were not only music, but also, you know, being involved in the community in some way, putting on radio shows. It, it was incredibly inspiring to see that like these older kids who were like 16 were like running small record stores and literature distribution operations and stuff. So uh, it's not limited to my experience, the kind of the kind of focus and the kind of motivation I felt even as a four, 13, 14 year old was something that was very common in this little subset of people who I grew up with in Arkansas. So thanks to that, In the fall of 92, I started self-publishing comics, just printing 50 to 100 copies at a time. And thankfully, the one comic book shop in my town was generous enough to offer some shelf space. And this is like at the peak of the comics speculation boom. So like the the generosity cannot be overstated there. Uh, But thankfully, you know, like people took a liking to the comics at the time. And we tried to stay on schedule and finish an issue every two months. Again, just incremental goals that could be attained. And we were able to stick to that bi-monthly schedule. So as I got less interested in superheroes and more interested in, you know, other parts of adolescent existence, it took a while for comics that I made to reflect that. Because in Arkansas, pre-internet, there was like no awareness of comics that existed that weren't superhero stories. So I made a lot of personal zines while still drawing superhero comics that I was finding less and less in common with. So almost like it sounds like as a teenager, were you making like superhero comics as your quote unquote day job? Because you figured that's what would sell in the comic book shop. But then this draw of of other sorts of graphic literature was pulling you. Is that it? That's a good question. I did love them. You know, I, I consumed them ravenously. But it's important to note this. When I started drawing comics, I think one of the biggest formal influences was these 1980s reprints of the earliest Chris Claremont X-Men comics. So it's a series called Classic X-Men, and it would have the 1970s comic as the first story, but it would have a new backup story in each issue that usually was not conflict-related. There usually weren't huge fights and explosions in it. It was quieter. It was more personal. It was focused on a limited character or two. And I was immediately drawn to these narratives. I was drawn to the emotion and the intimacy. Frankly, I just didn't know that, you know, you can pursue these kinds of storytelling and this kind of characterization outside of superheroes. So I think the closest I ever really got was having a vague awareness of love and rockets and... You know, if you consider the original run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to not be a superhero comic, even though it is, yeah, uh, you yeah, know, that yeah. that was the, the furthest I got outside the bubble until I left for college. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, comics can actually be just about anything to communicate any idea. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I'm right there with you on, on some of those X-Men stories. And I think that's why I was always so drawn to them, too, is because they always had such personal conflicts like internal and external and and with one another as well what did soap you, opera you was like a soap opera um what did what did you study in college 
Well, I went to a year of school at George Washington University in DC. It was an odd kind of fluke. Like I was a quote unquote good student. I liked school, but I never, ever, ever thought about college until like halfway through 12th grade. And a lot of that was like 1990s teen angst mixed with parental pressure. And instead of just kind of like taking a minute and actually figuring out what I wanted to do, you know, I was able to get enough like scholarship money and loans and I like headed off to school. But along the way, I figured out it was actually listening to a Bruce Springsteen live box set that has this super emotional intro to the song The River, where he's talking about not getting along with his old man and getting in a motorcycle accident. And his dad brought a barber in to cut off his hair and all like all this stuff. Anyway, listening to that song, it occurred to me, I just had to be true to myself. I need I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to spend my life making comics. And then I just dedicated the next year of my life to transferring schools and committing everything to comics. So after that, I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City and majored in cartooning. And what was your dad's, you know, military? What was his relationship to your making art? Was he, was he supportive? Did he understand it? That's a really good distinction to make because every time I, I sort of set up my life story, like growing up as this military brat yeah. in the Cold War, my dad and I are virtually identical. And uh, he's very much not a kind of like gung-ho, hardened military dude. So the reverse is actually true. As this super gung-ho G.I. Joe kid who grew up with these very fantastic nationalist you know, fantasies of what military adventure and violence was like, he was always very careful to show the nuance and to stress not only that war was hell, but to stress that a lot of the limitations and the conformity that uh, that is a part of military culture and identity and really tried to caution me, you know, just like enjoy what you enjoy, but know that what you are absorbing, what you're enjoying, you know, was not his lived experience. Mm. So my parents, yeah, my parents were always supportive of what I did, but it is funny because once I stopped making a kind of comic that they could recognize you know, as parents, I, when I stopped making X-Men ripoffs and started doing this weird, you know, kind of non-superpowered, punk-oriented, teen angst, riddled, independent comic with swearing and stuff in it, or that had like political ideas in it, it took several years for them to kind of adjust to that. It was definitely a journey early on. But, you know, it's really nice because, you know, that's also an intergenerational path there. It's like baby boomers who grew up with a certain relationship to comics, slowly needing to acclimate to the ways in which comics are a very rich, broad medium that we know now. First of all, that's beautiful that they were so supportive. But also you're right in that, you know, that generation, especially if, if all you know is superhero comics, it's hard to take a step back and realize, you know, comics... You know, it's a it's a format. It's not a genre, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes. And that you can have so many different kinds of stories to tell. And you know, like I think, like all parents, you're concerned for your kids' well being when they grow up. So they're probably thinking, like, is this kid just gonna Xerox his comics for the rest of his life, right? And Without in a sense, doubt. yeah. You did mention, like, when you got to college, you were exposed to other kinds of comics. Like, what other kind of stuff like opened your eyes to to what was possible? The three biggest game changers for me were Chester Brown's I Never Liked You, 
that's probably the number one most influential comic on me. I was in class one day and a student of mine, you know, you spend all day showing portfolios and critiquing each other's stuff and just talking about why you make the comics you make. And this classmate of mine, as we're leaving, Nate, I brought you this book. You need to read it. I was like, oh, thanks. Thanks, man. And he's like, no, you need to go home and you need to read it. So I was like, okay, okay. And I, yeah, I started reading. I never liked you. And there's this just this very quiet sequence where the protagonist, as probably like a 12-year-old kid, is like very quietly walks through the house and gets his mom's attention, touching her lightly on the elbow and brings her over to the kitchen and in front of the fridge where there's an egg that has just fallen out of the fridge and it's broken on the floor and looks up at her and she's like, oh, oh, did you think I was going to be mad about that? And then she just like gives him a little hug and that's the end of the scene. And I was devastated, just, just destroyed reading this sequence, just crying in the bathroom of my dorm, going from zero to 60 in terms of like the kinds of emotion and experience that can be communicated in a comic, especially almost wordlessly that changed my life. And the other two were Dylan Horrocks Hicksville, which I think is the best graphic novel ever made. And the third would probably be this somewhat obscure Vertigo imprint released book by J.M. DeMattis and Glenn Barr called Brooklyn Dreams. It was like four little issues and then it was collected into a book. And it was basically uh, the writer, you know, giving, giving a memoir of adolescence in Brooklyn at a certain time. But the range of art styles that were used throughout varied so wildly and it was so freeform and allowed for so much beautiful rhythm and just like visual poetry that that kind of opened me up to the different types of approaches you could take just to putting a line on the page. Yeah. And also just knowing that you can take time for quiet moments, right? Because, you know, those comics that we always saw growing up, you know, there's always action and they were short right when you think of the comics we would get at the spinner rack at the comic book store 17 18 pages with another five pages of ads for like kool-aid and whatever nintendo game always kool-aid always kool-aid yeah and it was was always had to be one thing after the other very quickly there wasn't that real estate for those comics to have that time so that makes that makes total sense that that those stories and comics would then just send you on this different trajectory without a doubt so you know eventually you left college right and where did life take you after school so the other part of my origin story really is that my older brother who's six years older than me is on the autism spectrum and functions on a pretty high level but for a kid born in the early 70s who is going through a lot of discovery and change especially being on the spectrum in the 80s he had a rough time and the Powell family had kind of a rough time. And like, it, it's important to note now that, you know, the autism spectrum didn't exist until 1995. So in the 1980s, there was a very limited range of definition, but also in terms of behavior and ways of dealing with the world, and different supports to provide. A lot of that stuff really wasn't there. So this is very impactful on the way that I saw the world but also the way that I navigated difference, the ways that I interacted with other people. So for 10 years, starting in college, I had a whole separate career, which was doing 
personal care work and advocacy work for adults with developmental disabilities. And frankly, because like I wasn't interested in doing mainstream comics by the time I finished college and I didn't want to stay in New York City, I was more interested in like touring with my band and making my own weird stuff. You know, I was like, well, I'm never going to be able to be a full-time cartoonist, so I should just keep doing what I'm doing. And I'm perfectly happy just doing work for people with disabilities for the rest of my life. That's very fulfilling. I do a good job. And, and I'm actually still fine with that if the bottom were to fall out and I needed to find something else to do in life. Like I, I know that that is also a, a home planet for me and that it's something I feel passionately about. Well, that truly is another part of your origin story because there, there is so much advocacy in all of your work. Even before the March trilogy was launched, I always saw that in your work, and it's so admirable because you always take a, a very strong and brave stance in your art, in your stories, and in everything that you are. So where did you first see your work in print in a traditional sense, right? So, yeah. and, I, and I love that you, you, you weren't waiting. You, you found this group of people. You didn't wait for someone to make it happen for you. Like you were making your art. You were making your zines, you were sharing it, you were putting it out there, you were forming community. At some point, there must have been some switch where suddenly you went from making, you know, small zines to then a full length graphic novel, you know, you would have to sign a contract for it because someone else was going to foot the bill to, to print all the copies and distribute it, right? You bet. I guess, yeah, along the way, I was continuing to put out just mostly shorter works. I, I by this point, I was in my mid, you know, early to mid 20s. So I still didn't have like, I didn't have the most far reaching sense of how to spend my time and exactly how deep down the rabbit hole of my stories to go. So I still wasn't topping past maybe like a 64 page story. Thankfully, I, not thankfully, it was very emotional. But my longtime punk band finally kind of went kaput in 2006. And a lot of that was based on the fact that we, I mean, we grew up together. Mike, who I started drawing comics with, he was in that band. In many senses, we were truly a family. I mean, members of the band were married to each other, in fact. Wow. But over time, you know, we were all living in different places and it got so difficult to actually get together to spend time together that we weren't producing new ideas. And eventually we had to kind of mm. call time of death on the band. But what happened then was it occurred to me, I had been structuring my entire life around when my band Sufi Nun Squad could go on tour or when we could record. And without that structure, all of a sudden, it didn't seem so impossible to make a story that was 200 pages long. And in fact, it, it, it became clear to me that there isn't a whole lot of difference between doing a 50 page comic and a 200 page comic. It, it, it's just a matter of keeping your focus and sort of seeing the big picture. So Swallow Me Whole was the first book-length comic I ever did, which uh, was released in 2008. And it originally occurred to me in a dream way back in 2001. So uh, to give a sense of the amount of time that kind of goes in before you're even drawing anything, just to whittle something into shape and make it a story that makes some kind of sense. I, I spent years just kind of tinkering around with this story in my sketchbook before it finally made enough sense that I thought it was actually a story that I could get away with publishing. And I never really expected that people would really get into it. But to my surprise, uh, it wound up getting a couple of awards and people, especially like teenagers and young adults, responded really strongly to it. 
And that was the first time where my super out there kind of intuitive dreamy ideas were actually received positively by total strangers. And, and so that was a huge moment. And I have that book. I forget where I found it. It might have been at my local comic book shop. I mean, there's nothing I love more than going into my comic book shop or any comic book shop and just like trying to find something that you haven't seen, you know, nothing about and, and the cover strikes you. And, and I, I just grabbed it right away. And so wow. that, that was that was my introduction to your work, actually. And any empire was was another early one. Was any empire second in your like? What is, what is the order? Of it was your... second. Yes. So Swallow Me Whole was the first solo graphic novel, and then I did Any Empire, and simultaneously drew a book called The Silence of Our Friends. Um, uh... And so, so this this coincides with actually getting a brief window to try quitting my job and seeing if it was possible to survive as a cartoonist. And so. What I realized, and what's true today, is that I needed to work on more than one book at a time in order to kind of make ends meet, but that it was possible. I mean, especially before I was a dad and I had an ocean of free time, relatively speaking, (laughs) it was just a matter of like dividing up my time and then using it in a smart way and just trying to figure out more of those tricks so that you're not getting bored with all the time you're spending drawing. So I started experimenting with doing each book in a slightly different style. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful, but it also expanded my sense of of how to communicate. And and publishing is also publishing is really slow business as well. It is. I mean, it's 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 slow on the you know the businessy businessy side, and it's slow on the creative artsy side because these ideas need to percolate. They they don't develop just overnight. And I love that you're working on a few at a time because that's that's typically what I do as well. And and I don't know if you ever feel this, but sometimes I think like, am I, am I th- working on too many things at once? But you have yes. so many different things going and you don't know what's going to hit and you don't know what is going to develop in such a way. I mean, you might have an idea and within two months, you know what to do with it. On the other hand, you might have an idea and another 20 years later, you're still like, I like that idea, but I still don't know where to take it. That's always been really exciting to me as the years have gone by is recognizing that some ideas just have to kind of marinate for yeah. five years or even 10 years. Uh, I still have every, every couple of months, I'll look through the notes section of my phone. That's just like little nuggets of a story. And yeah. some of them are just a single line or a basic concept. But I know that the time will come for several of these. The book that I'm doing right now is called Fall Through. And I wrote down the original idea for the book in 2007 as I was inking Swallow Me Whole, that very first solo graphic novel. And a lot of it was just that it took time to arrive at a point where, in terms of writing fiction, you knew the difference between saying what you wanted to say or talking about the, the thing that mattered to you and then finding characters or finding a sequence of events that would allow you to say that in the context of fiction. I'm personally not very interested in doing autobiographical or memoir stuff about my own life, which is ironic because the last book I did was, was in say. fact that, uh, but that was a little bit of a different case. So yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah, a yeah. fan of the power of fiction to tell the truth. And that's so, you know, something that graphic novelists in their, in their forties can come to at peace with. But I remember being a teen and being in my 20s, being really impatient or really angry with myself if my ideas weren't growing into fruition as quickly as I wanted them to. But you just you can't force 
creativity, all you can do is give it time, right? You give it that space um, yeah. and you give it that, that space to grow. If you're enjoying my chat with today's guests and want to see the conversation, which includes visuals of the books we reference, check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories. I recorded this talk via Switcher Studio. Switcher Studio is a simple and powerful iOS app that makes your live video feeds look like a professionally produced piece. Your iPad becomes like the production control room as you switch between your iPhone camera, which acts as a webcam, your remote guests, and any pre-recorded video or visuals you want to bring on screen. I would like to thank Switcher Studio for sponsoring this podcast. And as a thank you to you for listening, you may use code STUDIOJJK at switcherstudio.com to receive a free month of the service. So at what point did Andrew Aiden loop you into the fact that he he's trying to get John Lewis to tell his story through through the medium of comics about the civil rights? And how did you and Andrew become friends? Like, like how did that come about? Well, for my part of the story, like Andrew and Congressman Lewis had uh, had agreed to work together on what would become March in like fall 2008. And so they spent about two years working on it in isolation, doing a a rough script for a single book entitled March. In late 2010, I was finishing work on Any Empire and also doing Silence of Our Friends. And during a lunch break, I was checking the Top Shelf Comics website, just looking at news. Uh, I'd been publishing with them since 2006. And I remember seeing a press release for this new comic that was coming out called March. And I was like, oh, amazing history. The civil rights movement, John Lewis. I, I'm vaguely aware of, of, of John Lewis. I don't know a lot, but that's an awesome idea. And I saw this picture of our publisher, Chris Staros, with Congressman Lewis and Andrew. I was like, awesome. Well, back to work. And I did not think anything of it. Like, it didn't occur to me that the lack of an artist listed in the press release meant there was no artist yet. So a week or two later, my publisher called me and was like, oh, Nate, making sure you saw that press release. I want to strongly suggest that you try out for the role of artist. And beyond my recommendation, it's really just up to Congressman Lewis and Andrew. But a lot of it had to do with stylistic fluidity, like the balance between doing realistic representational art and having sort of intuitive, you know, lively cartooning. Uh, also, I'm from the South, and so there was a lot of historic, not just historical and contextual affinity, but being familiar with the lay of the land, with the way that streets and plants looked. The fact that I was working on a period piece from the South in the silence of our friends already, it was almost like a, a stylistic boot camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, I just got in touch with Andrew right away, did some demo pages, and about two weeks later, we had all teamed up. We, we actually didn't meet in person until the summer of 2012 at, at San Diego Comic-Con, but we'd been working together for at least a year at that point. Ah, see, you know how sometimes we have our own narratives in our brain? Like, because I know Andrew, you know, is, is a big comics geek like all of us, and he was going oh, yeah. to cons. Like, I just had this vision of like, you and him as teenagers at comic cons or something like that. And then, but so that's, that's wild. That's wild also to think of you reading that press release and this moving on with, with your date and thinking it's great that this book's going to happen. But not only would you make it happen, you, you made it happen in a really beautiful way. I mean, your, your art in that book is stunning and it, it, it brings that history alive to, to all of us in such a way that you know, you and I certainly weren't taught about when we were kids. Certainly and not. Certainly not. And even today, 
there are so many people trying to get kids not to learn about what really happened in the civil rights. And there's something about the power of a graphic novel where, you know, words on a page can be so abstract, you know, regardless of how you how you what your, your learning differences are. But wh- when you look at a graphic novel, it's like you're you're in the room with these characters, like you're you on are. the street, you're you're right there. It, it takes you past one or two levels of processing what you're actually reading and sort of puts you at a place almost beyond judgment where you're just absorbing the narrative in, in like a raw, unfiltered form. You don't have the barrier of old media, right? I know you, you see photos of the civil rights movement, you see photos of Martin Luther King Jr. and, and they're in black and white. So growing up, oh, like all that when I was growing up, that all oh, that picture is in black and white. That happened so long ago. And it's like, no, 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 like your parents were alive when this happened. Like, this is not ancient history. This is like just around the corner back there when this all happened. So because you have the medium of comics, like we're entering this story and and sort of like a neutral way, right? Like we're not saying like, oh, that's old grainy black and white film. I don't have to worry about that. That's not our problem anymore. Like you're 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 right there. You're right there in that story. And so so what was it what was it like to work with Congressman Lewis? I mean, I I'll tell you what. While I am a very outgoing person, I was right. I was at a Comic Con. I forget where it was, and he was there to promote. I think the first book, and he was like right next to me. Like we were just both in the middle of nowhere alley, you know, in the in, on the floor, and he was like on his phone texting, and I was like, oh my god, that's. And i i didn't have I didn't have the courage to like introduce myself. I was like, I'm just gonna stand next to him and like feel that aura absorb the energy. Yeah, yeah. absorb the energy. But you must have gotten to know him fairly intimately, uh, you know, bringing this art to life. So so what was that like? Well, I mean, thankfully, we got to spend uh, almost eight years together working and then also traveling and speaking together. And then as life went on and towards the end of his life, trying to transition to the role of just like pure friendship, like what, what he needed at the time. So, you know, I just like everybody else had that same kind of like comical response to actually meeting this legend. The first time I ever met him was on my way to Small Press Expo in 2012, which is a comic con outside of DC. I came in a day early to come down to the Capitol grounds and come meet Congressman Lewis. And I, I didn't really, you know, know the decorum or what I should be doing. So I dressed up in a three-piece suit, complete Whoa. with a vest. It was sweating buckets by the time I parked my car and and got you know into the the congressional building yeah I met up with Andrew and then Congressman Lewis met us and within a few minutes we were eating cornbread in the congressional dining room and which was funny because along the way like just as we were walking in and I was trying to keep my cool Andrew, who you know was a longtime staffer for Congressman Lewis so he spent a lot of time on all of these hallowed grounds. We're walking into the dining room and he's like, oh, Nate, by the way, like, just remember, like hundreds of years of debaucherous congressional partying, like imagine that like Thomas Jefferson is puking over here on this fern in the corner. <laughs> Be like, just remember this. We're on the Capitol grounds. This is hundreds of years of history. And I was like, wow, a good way to frame it of just like <laughs> lawmakers partying. But uh, yeah, so like, I, so I was super nervous and trying to like oh. figure out the best way to approach this meeting with the man himself. But Congressman Lewis, his public persona really is just who he is. He immediately puts you at ease. He's an incredibly good listener. 
he will always take time for someone. Not that he isn't like without a little, like without a sense of humor or a little saltiness or whatever, but he just has a great poker face. He can, it can take a long time to kind of read him. Like if he's really mad, you might get like a little flash of an eyebrow or if he's really (laughs) happy about something, you'll get just like just the corners of his mouth will come up and you're like, Oh yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, he, he was just, just a fantastic person to have in my life and to be around. Yeah. Over time, you know, we were traveling about every weekend for four years straight, probably. So, you know, you put in a lot of time and you get to really know somebody's soul and it really, you know, made life better and richer for that. And it, and it was wild just to watch the trajectory of the book's success, culminating in the first graphic novel to ever win a National Book Award. And, and, wild. and, and now, that you're, now that I'm hearing you tell your story of, you know, your parents just not knowing how you could make it as a graphic novelist if you didn't fit into all that was kind of known about making comics, which was superheroes, like... It's almost comical because I've had so many of these conversations with different graphic novelists. And like you, I was really lucky to have, you know, my, my parents, my, my grandparents who raised me like they they believed in me. They didn't fully understand it, but they were like, yes, go to art school. But, you know, the backup job for so many of our peers, for like for the parents was like, you know, learn computer programming, become a doctor. You your, your parents were like maybe Marvel or DC, <laughs> like that's because it's, yeah. it's a safer cushion than than what you were going into. But you followed your passion, you followed your North Star, you, you were true to yourself, and you were able to make one of the most important graphic novels of all time, one of the most important history books of all time, to break new ground to win the National Book Award. And that's all because you followed your passions and you, you remained true to yourself. And that, that, is, that is such a huge inspiration. Now, now you said, okay, you don't want to write memoir and you caught yourself because yes, you did have a book that was recently released, but you're right in that you're using your life as a framework to talk about, you know, our modern era and life here in America. Where is it? I have the book. So, so save it, save it for later. You bet. Wow. It's uh, intense. It's an intense story. It is. It is. And, you know, it's it's a story that is certainly not specific to like my family's experience, but a lot of it is about being a dad or being a parent from like, you know, 2015 to 2020 and watching my young kids grow up into an increasingly uncertain and turbulent social and political outlook and future and really just trying to equip them with the tools they need to grow into the people they're going to become and be able to kind of wade through a lot of the nonsense, but also like reinforce a lot of core values that authoritarianism can endanger or can turn upside down. The reason I made this book, being uninterested in doing memoir and autobiography, was that by the end of 2017, it occurred to me that a lot of the, you know, like there, there are a lot of reasons for people to get out there and get in the streets and protest and a lot of really serious newsworthy stuff happening in a political and social sense. But in that more kind of that quieter, more private way, I feel like people had already kind of normalized a lot of the chaos and figured Mm -hmm. like, oh, like the ways in which I'm scared or I'm uncertain or I have anxiety or feel a sense of doom or the ways in which I've maybe become a worse parent or, you know, like 
the ways in which a lot of that stuff is challenged, people felt like there wasn't exactly enough space to really talk about it anymore. Be like, no, we got we have more important things to worry about now. Importantly, I saw that I was doing that already. I was kind of shoving things to the side. But the truth is that the way that we live our daily lives and the way that we interact with young people and the way we interact with our communities is completely related to all of the social and political stuff that concerns us and motivates us every day. So this was kind of like comics as therapy at first. Like I just wanted to get a lot of these memories down before I forgot them and remember that you know there people needed to have space to kind of talk about that kind of stuff before that space was gone. So I was going to do this like super thin 96 page book and try to have it out in six months. As things started to click and I started to make more connections with social stuff and with like pop culture symbols and paramilitary stuff and going all the way back to being like a military kid in the 80s, questions I had back then that I was just now getting answers for, it occurred to me that was all part of one book. And then that's the kind of thing where it's worth taking an extra year or two to communicate all that the best you can. And wow, I mean, as awful as things were for the first chunk of time that you made this book, 2015, 2016, 2017, was the deadline next week and then the pandemic hit and you're like, I'm going to need a couple more months because a lot more awfulness has just happened and I need to put that in there too. I've never had it. Obviously, I've never had an experience like that before this book. But yeah, like I spent 2018 and 2019 working really hard on Save It For Later and I finished it or I thought in January, late January 2020. And I was like, ah, that's it. And I knew that it wasn't going to come out until after election day 2020. And I knew that it was going to be, I already knew it was going to be published in a a total unknown landscape in terms of what the reality of America was at the time. So I was already thinking about how do I make the stuff I'm trying to talk about survive that level of uncertainty. But then the pandemic hit. And basically, I just kind of like threw my hands up for a couple months, you know, like everybody did and just like, got real close with my family. But by May 2020, basically, I knew I had a few months left to do a chapter about 2020, knowing that it had to be finished before election day and sent to the printer. And so it kind of turned that pressure up even even more. So there's a chapter in there called Tornado Children, which sort of sums up the first, yeah, six months of the pandemic. And I sort of had to, in order to make the book survive into this totally uncertain future, the idea was that sure, this book is a little bit of a time capsule, but it has to be a a letter to the future. Mm. It has to communicate things that are going to survive no matter what the outcome of the election was going to be, no matter what kind of world it was published into. Because a lot of the problems that brought us into this chaos, well, they're still here, as everyone can see now. So that, that was a big component of it, was trying to like, instead of thinking about the moment, then try to think towards the future that the book would be born into. And the greater context, too. I mean, something certainly that that your work and your social media posts always speak to me is that, you know, we can't let our guard down. Like, we need to continue to, to work and strive towards a better reality for all of us, for every single person, for, for our kids. Because, you know, growing up, you think, oh, like, our forefathers fought off the Nazis all done. We're good. Like, no, like there's still evil in the world and it still That's needs right. to be kept. Look, if, if Luke Skywalker ends up 
on a mountain on an island by himself because things fell apart. Like we too <laughs> need to continue to fight the good fight. So Nay, I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your time chatting with me and, and giving me and, and the listeners a, a deeper understanding of you and your work. And I, I always look forward to your art, whether it comes across my Instagram feed or or my bookshelf. So I, I look forward to seeing what you give us next. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to just have an opportunity to keep making comics and, and that people actually read them and, and that they mean something. So thank you. Well, that was today's origin story. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in picking up some of my guest books and you'd like to order online while supporting a human with a dream, head to studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for a link to High Five Books, a wonderful sponsor of the show. Until next time, you may find me via at Studio JJK across all social networks.